but but they would say mm. we're Nestorian, right? They'd go back and say, well, you guys are Nestorians. It's like, oh, turnabout's that fair is, game. That we'll... is the charge, yeah. Right, Those are right. fighting words. I'm, I'm, prepared to, I'm prepared to try to dismantle that. But... Nice. That's good. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is uh, an episode in theology. We're going to be talking with Dr. Stephen Duby about his new book, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism. I'm really stoked to, to talk with him about this. It's biblical Christology in light of the doctrine of God. And um, I'm yeah, some of you guys will, will have seen this book around, like it's making its way around. It's, it's a really good treatment of classical uh, theism. Um, it's philosophical, it's theological, there's going to be some Greek and Hebrew in there for you. It's it's fantastic. I'm really excited to talk with him about it. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. If this is one of your top five or top 10 favorite podcasts, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. You can give for all different amounts, and there's different uh, benefits at each level. Benefits. Nice. I got it that time. Um, there's There's all different benefits at different levels, so please go ahead and do that. Um, you can also find the super thanks button down here somewhere. If you want to give above and beyond Patreon or just a one-time gift, buy me a cup of coffee or something. That would be awesome. Another way to support the pod. Um, and then, uh, another really cool way is to go to the Parker's Pensies merch store. You can see here's my dumb face, uh, as an Android. There's all sorts of cool designs from, uh, Chase Han over there. Um, so you can find the link in the description as well. Check out the merch, buy it, support his art and uh, my stupid face. So that is another way. All right. Uh, without further ado, check check the description. There's all sorts of other links that you can find um, us at. But uh, let's get right into talking about uh, cla- uh, classical theism and Christology with Dr. Stephen Duby. Dr. Duby, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and and thanks for this book. This this book is fantastic, and I think it is um, pretty timely. Before we go in on like the motivation for it, I want to hear a little bit about a little bit about you. How did you get into theology, and what made you want to be a professional theologian? Great question. Um, after I became a Christian in high school, I developed a strong interest in studying Scripture, understanding. Christian doctrine better. I thought it would help me spiritually and and potentially be useful to other people as well. I thought maybe I would go down the track of um, seeking to become a pastor. And when I was in seminary, I was 50-50 between seeking to pastor or seeking to um, teach theology in an academic environment, whether that's a Christian university or seminary or something like that. And I was encouraged to to pursue more education in the hope of um, being able to serve teaching theology at a, at a place like a Christian university or seminary. And for me, I think um, theological study is beneficial for, for clarity of my own mind, but I've, but I've tried to find ways to use that to um, explain things better in, in the context of uh, Christian education or the church. And um, I'm, I'm always intrinsically interested in difficult questions in theology and think that they matter not only intellectually, but, but spiritually and practically as well. And uh, I haven't lost interest yet and intend to keep doing that for the rest of my life. So that's, that's a short version of the story. That's awesome. So uh, I think you did your PhD at St. Andrews. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, What was the the topic there? Yeah. Uh, So I focused on divine I focused on divine simplicity. Um, At first, I wasn't exactly sure which divine attribute or set of divine attributes I'd want to land on. And then I ended up focusing on simplicity, which I think is important in its own right. And then also, um, I think has a lot of potential for shaping how we understand how we know God. So it's it's a bit of both. It's a bit of uh, theology proper, and then also understanding how we even come to know God. Yeah, that's awesome. I think we might be working with a little bit of a, a time lag here, so sorry about that if I if I jump in on you on accident. Um, no problem. Who who was your uh, your doctor father there at St. Andrews? Uh, Ivor Davidson. Ivor Davidson was my supervisor, and I didn't know of him at first, which I realized was my fault. <laughs> He's done great work in theology, 
um, and is not only very intellectually sharp and rigorous, but but a, a good man as well. So I had a great experience working with him. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, so uh, jumping in on the book a little bit, um, the the book is it's Jesus and the God of Classical Theism, and you had your work cut out for you because you have you have to work with uh, with the non-classical theologians. You have the uh, neoclassical philosophers. You have, uh, you know, uh, the textual guys. You got the exegetes. Like, there's a lot of people that you have to wade through here. Um, I, I thought that was awesome. But it's a huge project. It's huge. It's crazy the amount of people and sources you have to you have to reference. I wanted to, um, my audience, uh, I have a lot of philosophers uh, in my audience. And I wanted to see what you take to be the relationship between philosophy and theology. How, how important is it for a theologian to have a grasp of philosophy in order to do their theology? I think it's it's really important to be conversant with key themes, key concepts in philosophy. So I think I would I would probably view the use of philosophy as twofold in the context of doing theology. Um, on the one hand, you've got basic features of philosophical knowledge or what I might just call natural human knowledge of reality that I think do play a role. Um, even in the very beginning, going into the yeah. theology, everyone, for example, at least implicitly assents to something like the law of non-contradiction, and that ought to play a role in how in how a person does biblical exegesis and uh, the, the formulation of Christian doctrine. So there are some really basic things that I think um, should be present and carried through even from the very beginning in theology. And then I think... Um, as a person is developing exegetical conclusions and doctrinal conclusions, it's important for them to be able to access uh, key philosophical concepts so as to shed light on those conclusions. So it's not a matter of letting philosophy dictate what God may or may not reveal to us. That would be an overestimation of philosophy's role. But um, it is important to have at one's disposal the use of good philosophical concepts to clarify the things that God has in fact revealed. And I think sometimes theologians or exegetes, they get a little bit nervous about bringing philosophy to the table in, sure. in, uh, in formulating Christian doctrine. Um, but one of the things that's become more and more important to me is just trying to say that um, philosophy doesn't have to be a scary thing that's detached from ordinary human knowledge. I think philosophy at its best is just um, it's just a matter of analyzing things that human beings already know about or trying to trying to refine a person's grasp of things that human beings already know. So uh, let's say in the doctrine of the Trinity, if a person appeals to the distinction between essence and hypostasis or something like that, we could actually trace that distinction back to ordinary human knowledge of reality. And it doesn't have to be something other than invoking ordinary human knowledge of reality so as to help us understand scripture better. And I think mm. at, at the end of the day, everyone has to recognize scripture has to be interpreted and we appeal to, or we, we use ordinary features of human knowledge to say, well, this text means this, but not that, or it means that if you consider it with reference to this, but not to that. So I think the use of philosophy ought to serve in, in something in a, in a way that's something along those lines. Yeah, man, that was really helpful because so so often those words, well, we don't use those words anymore in in everyday language, like yeah. um, stasis and stuff like that. But yeah, but it's it, it's so cool that you know, like that that was back then. I mean, just a Greek word, and they were speaking Koine Greek back then, mm. um, or mm. maybe it's from classical, but it's a Greek word. And uh, so now it's come on, it's come to take a technical definition, but it was originally used to help elucidate what's going on in the text. It wasn't you know, yeah. a, a made up word in order to make sense of stuff. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, That's really helpful. Well, okay. So I want to just one more before we jump in, just kind of a broader theological question. Um, what role does mystery play in theology? Because uh, a lot of my philosopher friends, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I got a couple of degrees in theology over at Ted's and now I'm working on mm -hmm. a, a degree in philosophy of religion. And I, so I'm, I'm in swimming in both streams and I, I noticed the philosophers, do not like mystery as much. Sorry, guys, but I, I've seen it. I've seen you guys. And and the theologians love it. And some of them will really ham it up, especially if you're following Bob Inc. And you're like, well, mystery is the 
the the lifeblood of of dogmatics or systematics. Yeah. Um, what what, what <laughs> yeah. do you make of that? What do you think the role of mystery is in theology? Yeah, I think you could use the word in more than one sense. I think that philosophers get nervous when mystery is employed or when the, when that word is invoked, yeah. just to avoid thinking about a difficult topic or something like that, or when yeah. it's invoked to avoid explaining oneself. Um, and I think it is important not to use the word mystery as a, as a cop-out, as if to say, I don't need to explain how this claim um, isn't contradictory or something like right. that. So I think there is um, mystery in a that the word mystery can be used in, in a negative way so as to just try to get out of explaining something or try to try to get away from having to implement something like the law of non-contradiction in a person's right. theological work but um on the on the other side of it i think that philosophers and theologians do need to make a lot of room for mystery in a good sense um and that is because even though god's revelation does not uh actually contain contradictory things or things that are contrary to reason it certainly does contain things that are above reason that cannot be fully grasped um, by our finite intellect so i think it, it is our business in theology to explain as far as we can things that god has revealed for the edification of of, of the Christian mind, of the Christian church. Um, but there are also so many points at which we have to say, um, this is as far as I can go, or I, I know that this is the case, but I do not fully understand how this is the case. Um, I, I have to, I have to bring out that distinction between that and how quite a bit in my theology classes. And it's important not to play that card too fast so as to shut down people's thinking about something. But I do think there are plenty of places in our theology where we have to say, we know that something is the case. We just don't know how it is the case. And even, even when I use that distinction, I'm still willing to say, let me explain how this claim in Christian doctrine is not self-contradictory. Yeah. Um, it's just that, for example, if you ask me all about all the mechanics of something like the son's eternal generation or the spirit's eternal procession uh, from the father and son, I know that I know that it is so that the son proceeds from the father and the spirit from the father and the son. But if you start going into how we have to at some point throw up our hands and say, I, I'm not being intellectually lazy. I'm just I'm just not able to penetrate further into yeah. this thing that is above my comprehension. So I think we need to be ready to dive in and be intellectually adventurous in theology, but also be ready to say this is the point at which um I, I'm not able to analyze further and I'm okay mm. with that. And I ought to be okay with that as a finite creature thinking about the infinite God. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, you, you might've triggered all of our Eastern Orthodox friends uh, with the filioque uh, there say, from the father and son. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, sorry folks. But uh, yeah, but um, I, I really like that. I, I think I'm right there with you where I, I, I love that you said, I would say, don't, um, don't punt to mystery too early, but you know, but we are finite beings made in God's image. So we can, we're made in God's image. So we can understand a lot. He made us to understand, but we're not God. So we're yeah. not gonna be able to understand him fully. And I, I, um, I love what you said, man, especially there, even if we have to say, Hey, this is a mystery. We can still show why that mystery falls out of Christian theology. He, we, it, it's to be expected yeah, sure. because he is transcendent. It makes sense that we wouldn't. So even when using mystery, not using it as a, uh, a cheap ploy to get off of the hook or something like that. So mm. I'm right there with that. I think yeah. that's great. Um, so, so the book is called again, it's Jesus and the God of classical theism. So I thought maybe we could spend a little time on just what, what is classical theism? What do you, what do you take to be uh, classical theism? Is there, um, is it a core set of doctrines? Um, is it a theology proper? This is the doctrine of God. Is it more than that? What, what, what do you think? I think that there are, of course, there is, of course, uh, a range of different uses of that phrase. So it's difficult maybe to pin it down in a way that would satisfy everybody. But for me, the phrase basically signifies an account of God that prioritizes or emphasizes certain attributes that include aseity, um, immutability, impassibility, eternity in the sense of transcending time or succession, 
uh, simplicity as well. And I recognize each of those words deserves a careful distinction in its or careful definition in its own right. But right. if I can postpone that for the moment, I would just say, <laughs> usually I use the phrase classical theism so as to refer to an account of God that emphasizes or at least includes those things. And um, in the book, in the introduction, I try to say right out of the gate that I'm not particularly invested in this phrase. <laughs> it's just a way of alerting people to the kind of discussion that is taking place in the book. So if a person thinks um, they don't like the phrase classical theism, I frankly do not care. I am mostly <laughs> interested in just alerting people to the kind of discussion we're having and then trying to jump as fast as we can into actual substantive concrete issues and um, hopefully the discussion of those things is persuasive whether a person cares for the, the phrase classical theism or not yeah yeah i like that i found that helpful um you you uh you you start with divine aseity there and you say um, aseity lies at the heart of classical theism and then from aseity you get immutability and impassibility and eternity and, and simplicity um, I think you're probably right there. Can you help us with uh, with the audience? Like, what 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 do you take to be divine aseity? What is that? Yeah, I would say it's it's an attribute signifying that God uh, has life in and of Himself, without depending on another to be the God that He is, to be who He is, or what He is. Um, so, within that plenitude of life, um, we could, or from that plenitude of life of God, we could then talk about how that affects our view of other attributes like immutability, impassibility, and so on. Um, but I, I do think it's still possible to emphasize that aseity has its own conceptual content, uh, mm. and it's it, it's fundamental to a good understanding of God. And then it influences our view of things like immutability, impassibility, and so on. But those also have their own conceptual content. I take aseity to be something that emerges from key scriptural text indicating that God does not need us to have fulfillment. Um, I take it to be something that follows, uh, or I should say maybe is enriched by a Christian understanding of the Trinity as well, uh, hmm. wherein we get the sense that it's not as if God was solitary, um, needing somehow to find an external counterpart or someone on whom to, to place his delight when we have the doctrine of the Trinity, our understanding of God is opened up so that we know that the Father eternally has his his perfect image in whom he delights in the Son and the Father and the and the Spirit and the Son spirate the Spirit. So there is an eternal fellowship of love within God, which um, I don't think has to be the only ground on which we can articulate the doctrine of aseity, but I do think the Trinity is is wonderful in opening up aseity more. Yeah. Uh, giving us a, an even richer understanding of it. Man, I think you're right. I, I love that. So when you say it has its own conceptual content, are you um, are you referencing like the distinction between apophatic and cataphatic theology? Or are you saying that? Because oh, a lot of times people um, say, well, I, especially yeah, in classical, sorry, in classical debates, people say it's all apophatic. It's all just negative. Uh, God mm-hmm. is not of something else. Therefore, he is ase. Or saying something positive like yeah. cataphatic about him. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to speak to that. When I when I said that at first, just a second ago, my focus was really on how these attributes of God, their their content is interrelated. And so it can be really tough to talk about just one without gotcha. automatically gesturing toward the other ones. Okay. Um, but regarding the apophatic, cataphatic issue, I do think it's important to recognize these attributes have, they have both dimensions. We have to be uh, ready to say what God is not or what God is not like, but then also we do have to say what God is like. And it, it's pretty striking, um, even in someone like Aquinas, for example, who's keen to, to say what God is not like. There's there's also a place where he says, basically, every negative thing that we say about God is is actually more fundamentally grounded in some positive understanding, which, which is remarkable. And I do yeah. think I do think that's right. Yeah, I think you're right too. Or, or, I think that's right as well. I I love that, and I I really do. I love Asadi. I have um, Exodus uh, three fourteen. Um, God saying to Moses, Moses, like who who should I say sent me? He says, you know, sir, uh, like I am who I am. And it's not it's not Yahweh yeah. yet. He does that right right next to it. But I have on my arm here. Yeah. I think therefore Echie. And people are like, why are you saying yeah. you're God? I'm like, no, no, no. I I think therefore I am the great I am. Um, mm. I love that because yeah. I, I do think Asadi is like the core fundamental. Um, 
I just want to get that straight. Like, do you think that um, Asadi comes first just in our, in our understanding of classical th- uh, theology or that it's like a bedrock foundational doctrine? It's because he's Asay that he can be all these other things or, or maybe you're maybe you're silent, silent on that. Yeah, well, I, I think if we're talking ontologically, I don't think sure. that it would it would make sense to talk about one thing and God causing another. And I know that's not the direction that you were necessarily yeah. going. Uh, but but I would say ontologically, there's not something in God that then causes other things. But if we're thinking epistemologically, I do think it makes sense to say that following a careful order of judgment, it it's good to place aseity uh, right at the beginning. Okay. In the order of discovery, I mean, it's possible for for someone to think about God and and realize. Um, they need to affirm such and such an attribute, um, and then maybe they get into thinking about another one. And there's not really any prescribed order for that. But I think if you were to back up and care and, and think carefully about um, what is it that is most fundamental in in the order of judgment, um, then I think it, it's good to place aseity right at the beginning. So discovery is wild; it can it can have its own order. But if I'm if I'm trying to offer um, a logically ordered account in a in a in a work of systematic theology, I would start with Thaseity when we're discussing these attributes. Okay, yeah, that's awesome. Um, some of my neoclassical uh, philosopher type friends they they agree with Thaseity, and they're like, God has to be a say for sure. Um, and then they say they they always have a problem with simplicity. All my philosopher friends, mo- mm-hmm. most maybe I shouldn't say all because <laughs> I do have some, mm-hmm. but they they all want to take issue with simplicity, and they go specifically because of the Trinity. And so that's really cool that you're, you're yeah. talking about that in, in the book here. Um, mm. Do you do you think that like do you have to have simplicity to have aseity, or uh, do, do, can you have one without the other? You think? So I think um, I do think they do go together. I think mm-hmm. um, it is possible for someone to affirm aseity and then take issue with divine simplicity. My thing at that point is when someone who's a Christian believer um, yeah. and affirms divine aseity, when that person denies simplicity, I don't actually think that they consistently follow through the implications of their denial of simplicity, or I don't think that they follow through the implications of their affirmation of divine complexity. Mm. Um, I, I've been, actually been asked, can someone be a Christian and deny divine simplicity? Yeah. Um, and I would say, in my judgment anyway, um, someone can be a Christian and formally deny divine simplicity. But if that person actually consistently follow through what that would mean, it would be so problematic for a Christian understanding of God that the whole thing would end up being destroyed. So to, to, mm-hmm. to the neoclassical friend that you imagine, I, I think what I would say is, yes, I get it. You affirm divine aseity, but take issue with simplicity. Um, I think the the problem there is if they de, if they deny simplicity, I I just don't think that they have yet followed through all the implications of that denial. So it, it's it's a it's a matter of granting that person the possibility of doing that, but then also saying if you were to work all of this out, I think you would end up compromising aseity in the end. Interesting. Okay. Um, would would okay? So it'd be compromising aseity. Would it would it be compromising? The doctrine of God would denying simplicity like necessarily lead to like tritheism or, or something like that in, in your view? So I guess I would say um, something that is complex, um, it's held together by something else. Yeah. And if if a person if a person said, um, well, look, I, I don't envision another being or entity per se that lies behind God that put God together. Um, they, they might say they envision that it is simply necessarily so that the attributes of God or the persons of the Trinity cohere or, or exist Mm -hmm. in unity. And I would say the problem there is you may not be envisioning an entity, uh, per se that holds God together, but you're still envisioning some kind of modal system that is responsible for holding God together. So aseity at that point is moved from God himself to some kind of 
necessity or modal system. It, I think it, it's it's almost a reification of modality. Uh, there is just a necessity that holds God together. And yeah. I would say divine aseity, it, it precludes not only some entity holding God together, but even an overarching modal system into which God supposedly has to fit. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, man, that's fascinating. Um, what if they, what if they just dropped in like, um, like perichoresis and they're like, well, I don't know what it is, but I know that there's this interpenetration of the divine persons. Um, Mm-hmm. And you know, together they each. Uh, it's hard to even say they, right? Because you don't want to like be in tritheism. But but the the persons of the Godhead, um, they they uh-huh. uh, mute, mute, mutually encompass uh, the divine nature, such that there's no divine nature above and beyond. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, but there there's three equal parts, each holy, each holy or truly God. Um, Mm-hmm. Such, it's such that there's no there's no modality above and beyond, but it's just the divine nature. But there's no divine nature apart from the three persons. Maybe that's maybe that's inconsistent. Yeah. Well, I think I think if you have if you envision each of the persons to be a part, you can't actually say that each one is the whole God. Um, mm. And I think that's that's where you get someone like William Lane Craig saying um, you cannot you cannot identify each of the mm. persons as God. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's something that he has said, which is problematic because scripture does identify each of the persons as the one God. It doesn't right. envision each of the persons as part of God. Yeah. But I, th- I, I think even with that rejoinder, you'd still have, you'd still have an issue there. Mm. Yeah. That's, it's so tough when we start getting into Trinity stuff. Um, can, <laughs> can, can you help us? I, I know this is just off the top of your head, but can you help us with, um, there's there's four words that come up in this conversation that that uh, I think will be helpful for the listeners: substance, subsistence, person, and essence. Like what what do we mean when we yeah. use these in, in theology? Yeah, with with substance, there's a twofold use. One would be um, roughly equivalent to essence, which is what something is, or the the the, the that which constitutes something as what it is. Um, yeah. Another use of substance would be. Um, that which um, exists um, indivisibly in its own rights without having to exist in something else in order to be. And in that case, substance is, is contrasted with accident. Mm-hmm. Um, then to subsist, that's, that is the act of existing of, of a substance. It's the act of existing of something that subsists in its own right without having to be a part of another um, essence covered that a little bit. It's, it's what something is. It's what constitutes something as what it is, um, in, in the creaturely categories of being, that would be, um, what constitutes something in a particular kind or a particular species. Yeah. And then with person, we're talking about a substance, um, substance in the sense of that, which exists per, per se without having to, to be a part of another, um, person then would be a, a subset of substance in that sense. Um, uh, a substance, or to use the Boethian definition, an individual substance of a rational nature. So an individual substance, not just of any kind, but of a rational nature. Um, and in that regard, we're talking about an individual substance um, that is either human, angelic, or we can apply the word analogically to the Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. And then, so when we apply it analogically to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, it would have to be like, it wouldn't, it, we wouldn't say individual substances or substance, because then you have three divine substances, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it it's tricky. <laughs> there are so huge tricky. debates about so the use tricky. of that. Yeah, there are huge debates about the use of that language um, yeah. in the history of Trinitarian thought. In the book, I, I try to include figures like Augustine, Boethius, Bonaventure, Aquinas. Yeah. So I do think it's fine to apply the Boethian definition of person within hmm. the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. Um, we would just have to make a couple of qualifications or clarifications. For example, um, individual in this sense doesn't mean, um, you know, one one third of deity or something like that. Or we wouldn't want to posit the divine, that the divine essence is somehow broken down further into each of the persons. That That would be off limits. Okay. But we are saying uh, each each one of these is not the other, and um, 
has an incommunicability uh, so that um, what it is that distinguishes one never becomes something that belongs to the other. Um, And then, and then I suppose the other thing that we can add is when we apply substance here, number, well, two things, number one, we're certainly not talking about essence as if there were three essences, but number two, when we apply substance in the sense of something that exists in its own right, without having to, to inhere in another, um, that can't, that definition can be applied to God as one because they're God as one subsists in his own right, doesn't have to inherit in another. But what does not apply there is uh, some property that renders something incommunicable. That applies only in the case uh, of each of the persons. So substance can be applied to God as one with regard to subsisting per se. Substance can be applied to God as three or to each of the persons when we add the, the aspect of incommunicability um, that is also ingredient in a full definition of substance. That's awesome, man. Thank, thanks so much for that. That's huge. Uh, the listeners are going to have to listen back on that, but I think it's super helpful to, to get clear on those terms. Um, so the, the, again, the book is, uh, we've talked a lot about classical theism, but it's Jesus in the God of classical theism. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Christ as, as the person. I, I really want to talk about uh, um, communicatio idiomatum, and uh mm-hmm. extra calvinisticum I, I love i love this stuff um so christ the the jesus christ is the second person of the godhead uh incarnate right so um the communication of well what's the, what is idiomatum in in english i guess uh properties would be a would be okay. would be fine so I, you could yeah. say communication of properties yeah. yeah so so the person jesus christ has yeah. the properties of divinity and the properties of humanity, and they're they're all c- communicated in his being, but there's not they're not mixed together, and and they're still yeah. they're still separate, right? Yeah, they're still distinct. Yeah, it's it's a sharing of the two sets of properties of the two natures in the one person of Christ, and it's important to emphasize that that takes place um, in the hypostasis or in the person, rather than that taking place. Um, across the two natures when you consider them abstractly. So you can say divine omniscience belongs to the man Jesus, but you can't say that divine omniscience, or you shouldn't say that divine omniscience uh, belongs to the humanity of Jesus per se. So you mm. want to, you'd want to say that the, each set of properties, and I'm, I'm giving one example of an attribute or property, divine omniscience, um, pertains to the one person. Um, and yet, it's it's important not to say that those uh, properties, let's say divine omniscience, it's important to say that, not to say that that belongs to the human nature of Christ. Now, if I if I accidentally offended any Eastern Orthodox listeners, I've just offended <laughs> Lutheran listeners. Um, yeah. There is a difference there between a Reformed account of the communicatio idiomatum and a Lutheran account of that, yeah. uh, which we, yeah. we may or may not get into. Either way, that's fine with me. Well, we. I was- we we say that they're Eutychian, right? Don't we say that like Eutychianism is is blending the um... that, that, yeah yeah. That, I mean that that would be a charge. So I I'm <laughs> I'm right. I'm in the book trying to be very careful. In the right. book, I'm trying to be careful to say the Lutherans historically deny that their view uh, leads to Eutychianism. So I want mm-hmm. to I want to honor that commitment that they have to ward off yeah. Eutychianism. Um, and, and recognize them as brothers and sisters in Christ. At the same time, it's fair to say, when I read this account, it implicitly would lead to Eutychianism because um, in, in, in Lutheran Orthodox Christology, um, it is acceptable to say not only that the man Jesus is omni- omniscient according to his or let's say omnipresent, the man Jesus is omnipresent according to his divinity. Um, they would also say the man Jesus is uh, omnipresent according to his humanity. And right. that's a point where I, I just I just couldn't agree with that, um, even right. if I recognize that they do still try to put in the work to alleviate the charge of Eutychianism. Yeah, because they need it for um, in 
with and through, I think, uh, in their in their sacraments. But but they would say mm. we're Nestorian, right? They go back and say, well, you guys are Nestorians. It's like, oh, turnabout's fair game. That is the charge, yeah. Right, Those are right. fighting words. I'm I'm prepared to I'm prepared to try to dismantle that. But nice, that's good. <laughs> Maybe a time, um, an, an issue for another day. Right, right. Um, well, so so we have some things in place with the with classical theism, like simplicity and aseity, and now we're getting into Christology here. Um, we have the unity and simplicity of God, but then we have this person, Jesus Christ, who uh, has this communicatium uh, idiomatum. Communicatio, communicatio. Uh, I'm I'm terrible at yeah. Latin, um, but he's got all these attributes, divine and and um, person. Mm. I think a, 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 what what people put their finger on as being a problem with simplicity is that they say, well, look, everything in God is God, so you don't want to have real um, distinctions in God. Um, you have three hypostases in God, three persons, but then you have simplicity, which seems like it's so strong that. It, it seems weird to think that um, the second person of the Trinity could incarnate without the first and third incarnating as well. I mean, I, I know you're familiar with this. Yeah. What, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I think maybe the first thing I would say is that it's easy for someone to have what I would call an overly austere reading of of divine simplicity. For sure. Um, I'm cons- I'm concerned that when someone hears divine simplicity, they think it means the elimination of all possible distinctions within God's being or within the doctrine of God or within the incarnation. It does not, it does not entail that. And it certainly does not have to entail that. Um, So I would say um, we could talk about maybe the son's assumption of a human nature and then the resultant state in which he, he has not only divine properties, but human properties as well. So with regard to his assumption of a human nature, how is it that, only the son ends up being incarnate. I think um, a, a good historical, um, helpful line of thinking here is just just to point out that um, all three persons perform the act of creating the son's humanity in the womb of Mary. Mm. Um, and yet it does not have to be the case that that humanity ends up residing in all three of the persons. Um, because they, they are distinct from one another. So if all three persons are distinct, yes, they do uh, um, exercise the one divine power together to create the humanity of the Son. But since they are distinct, it can be the case, and in fact is the case, that that human nature comes to reside and subsist in only one of them. So mm-hmm. this is a um, historically where there's, there's a distinction drawn between the act of assumption and then the termination or the the landing, the end point of the assumption. So all three persons perform the work of creating the son's flesh, but who is the end point in whom the flesh comes to reside? Well, it's not the father or the Holy Spirit. It's it's the son alone. Hmm. I find that to be uh, something that both honors the unity of God, the simplicity of God, and also makes good sense of how it is that only the son ends up being incarnate. A yeah. bit of a clunky way to put it is which one ends up being the end point that, that, that the human nature comes to rest on or subsist in, and, and that's only the sun. Then, of course, once the sun has his human nature with all of the, the attributes and experiences that are involved in that, you could raise the question, does that somehow conflict with divine simplicity? And I would again say simplicity is not to be read in, in an overly austere way. Um, simplicity pertains to the divine essence that the son has, that he shares with the father and the spirit, um, which is, is not fused together or mixed up with his humanity. So it remains simple. Um, and yet simplicity does not at all preclude the person having a second nature, which nature is complex involving composition of body and soul and essence and qualities and all of that. So, Maybe it sounds simplistic to some listeners, but I think working through some of these very normal things in Christian theology actually helps shed light on how you can uphold simplicity and have a a robust account of what happens in the incarnation. Yeah, I love that, and I, I think it's helpful. I always like using the qua move, but I think it's 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 not. Uh, I don't know. It, it may have fallen out of fashion, and now we say partitive exegesis instead, and we say, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. right. 
but it's it, do you do you like the qua move saying like qua his divine nature this yeah. qua his human nature that okay i love that that's fantastic yeah i think i think it's 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 appropriate to speak that, that way i think scripture actually um begins to lead us in that direction for example uh first peter 4 1 um Peter says that Christ suffered in the flesh. So he specifies the nature in which he suffered there. And that logic is taken up in the Council of Chalcedon. It is ingredient in conciliar Christology, ingredients in Orthodox Christology. Um, I ended up treating that issue, reduplication, qua speech, um, in the last chapter of the book. And I kept thinking... There will there will be some there will be some heavy stuff to to get through there some of the objections to um, to reduplication and I just found them not to be weighty in the end or or not to be not to be too difficult to handle and so I don't think that those objections we could go into the one I just don't think that those objections do end up problematizing reduplication. Okay, that's that's awesome. Um... When, so so referencing that verse, so Christ suffered in the flesh, the the person, Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, suffered, but he mm-hmm. suffered qua his human nature, uh, and not his divinity, yeah. because you still, because as a classical theologian, you still want to hold on to impassibility, that God does not suffer, yeah. or, or change, and it's not just suffer, but but any kind of change. Sure. No, that's immutability, I guess. In, impassibility means doesn't have passions, doesn't have emotions that, that change. Yeah. Um, is is this a mystery point where we just go like, because it's it's kind of hard to, it's kind kind of hard to wrap your mind around how the person, is, the person Christ is distinct, from just his human nature now because he has two two divine or he has two natures human and divine, um, mm-hmm. and and yet we, like we still want to hold on to immutability so God doesn't change the second person of the Trinity is God so he didn't change but adding on a new nature, like didn't change the person. I can't say that. You can't say he changed, but in a sense, he, he has <laughs> this new ability to, to suffer qua human nature. Yeah. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say a key point there is when he assumed a human nature, um, he did only have a divine nature by which he could perform that action of taking on himself a human nature. But when he performed that action that did not nece- necessitate a change in his divinity, he yeah. just terminated his already actual power on this particular work to create mm-hmm. uh, with the Father and the Spirit, the flesh in Mary's womb. Um, then it's once he has assumed that, he does have a principle of change within himself. It's just that because the divinity is not mixed up with the humanity, that principle of change is distinctly human. It pertains yeah. only to the human nature. Um, so from that point on, he does have the capacity to undergo ordinary human change, ordinary human suffering, and all of that. So, yes, there's mystery in the sense that we cannot comprehend what it means for one person to subsist in two natures. Um, but it's not as if you couldn't say anything about it so as to so as to address objections that involve, um, you know, worries about logical contradiction and that sort of stuff, which connects back to, I think, having a healthy sense of what mystery does and does not involve, you know, in Christian theology. Yeah, I love that. I think you're right. And and my my listeners will be sick of me um, doing this, but uh, I I did my master's thesis with uh, Kevin Van Hooser, and I I worked on the authorial Mm -hmm. analogy for the God world relation. And uh, I think it's just it's so helpful here thinking through like, you know, if C.S. Lewis wrote himself into the great divorce as a character, which he did, he has different properties in the story than he does uh, outside the story. And mm. so we still get to have the extra Calvinisticum of uh, C.S. Lewis, the <laughs> author, you know, in Oxford, who is limited yeah. as the character in the story. And yet the same person, C.S. Lewis, has these two different these two different natures. And it's an analogy, mm. which is fine because we we in theology we still get to have analogical predication, even though the philosophers want to give me mm. a hard time for for having it. Yeah. Um, well, so so that's I wanted to to um, finish up thinking about um, something that's, that's tricky for me to think through, and I've I've gotten some heat for it. But you talk about the son's dependence on the Holy Spirit, and I really like this. I wanted to I wanted to connect this with the extra Calvinisticum as well. So. Um, in the communicatio idiomatum, um, the person, the person Jesus Christ has 
human and divine. He's truly human, truly divine. So he's got all these properties. Um, the extra Calvinisticum says that like he didn't lay down his divinity. He still is upholding everything, even the cross as he's being crucified, qua his divinity. Um, but some people think that uh, when, when you read scripture, there, there's kind of this debate between did Christ do those miracles that he did um, according to like the power of the Holy Spirit and such that if he was only in his humanity um, and didn't tap into his divinity or he's he's God. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he can walk on water and stuff like that. And just wanted to, to get your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do we think through Christ's um, miracles and his reliance on the Holy Spirit and being the, the, the perfect man for us and also having a divine yeah. nature? Yeah. Um, the Bible keeps us on our toes when we read about Christ's miracles um, yeah. in the Gospels. I'm thinking, for example, of Mark 2 where Jesus performs an act of healing a paralyzed man in order to show that he has the divine authority to forgive sins. So you'd have to say that requires Jesus acting by his divinity or his divine power to produce that miracle. But then Mm -hmm. in other places, Matthew 12, 28, Acts 10, 38, it is said that Jesus uh, performs miraculous acts by the Holy Spirit. So you can raise the question, which is it? Jesus as God? performs miracles or Jesus as man in the power of the spirit performs miracles. And I actually think that um, those are two ways of describing one and the same thing in this Hmm. sense, when Jesus as God performs miracles um, it's left out, but it, 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 or it's, 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 uh, it's not explicitly described in the text, but it is still the case that when he acts as God, He's also acting with and through the Holy Spirit to to produce whatever the work is. And when he acts as man in the power of the Spirit, or when the Holy Spirit is active in doing something, Jesus as God is still also acting with and through the Holy Spirit to do whatever that work is. So Jesus as God works through the Holy Spirit to help Jesus as man do whatever works he is doing. Um, you don't get all of that from any one particular text, but I would say that the the Gospels and and you know other places in Scripture together put pressure on us to say that thing. It's not that mm. if someone is preaching a sermon and and they're dealing with a miracle text, they have to say all of that. But it is good theology. It is it is it is important to have a good underlying grasp of of everything that could be said about those events. In which, like I said, Jesus as God uh, acts and, and also acts with and through the Holy Spirit to help Jesus as man doing whatever he does. And that, that's we have to acknowledge that's unusual. There is no other person who has a divine and human nature. So it's weird, but right for us to say Jesus as God equips Jesus as man to do yeah. various things. Yeah, and I think that's not so bad, especially when you get into the doctrine of, um, I always forget the Latin, but it's like ex- the external operations of the Trinity. Um, do you know mm-hmm. the Latin for that? Can you help us with that? Yeah, opera trinitate sat extra indivisa sunt, if that's, if that's what you mean. So good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always forget the, I, I get like halfway through and I lose it and then I sound stupid. When I was trying to sound smart by using the Latin. Um, but but all the, the external operations of the Trinity are, are unified. So um, God, the Holy Spirit doesn't act alone. Um, and, and so yeah. with that, it's like, whoa, is it weird that Jesus is helping Jesus? Well, no, because God, the, the Godhead acts as one because he is one. And um, I, yeah. I think it, it gets hairy in certain like Christian contexts because if someone says like, well, look what Christ did. You can do, Christ said greater things than these shall you do. So here we go. Now I'm going to do all this mm. stuff that Christ did. And it's like, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Peter was walking on the water till he like didn't have faith, but. Um, they're not forgiving sins the way Christ did. And, uh, and some of those miracles, sure. like you said, est- established his authority. And I can't do that because yeah. I'm not him. So yeah. um, it, it gets hairy when we're trying to think through, like, yes, we're following Christ's footsteps and we have the power of the Holy Spirit, but no, I don't get to like forgive people's sins in the same manner that he yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. It's that's tough. Right. But that's why we need good theology. And, and I'm, I'm glad... Uh, <laughs> That's why we, yeah, that's that's why we need that. Um, well, I wanted to just follow up just a, a brief um, about the book. 
Is there any particular reason why this book right now? Is it just like it, it worked out in your thing, uh, in your in your schedule, or maybe you, you saw a need for it in, in the modern debate or conversation? Yeah, I think I think there is a need for it. And I'm certainly not the only one working on this area, but I, I wanted mm-hmm. to, to jump in so as to learn more. For me, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd done a fair bit of thinking about God's attributes, including ones like simplicity and aseity and all of that. But there is, of course, um, there are concerns about whether all of that fits with what the Bible actually teaches about the person of Christ. And if the highest revelation of God, that is to say the incarnation, if somehow that didn't fit with these attributes that have historically been predicated of God, then Christian theology would have would have a huge problem. So yeah. I wanted to to find a way to, to jump in, to learn more about those things, to try to think more clearly and speak more clearly about those things. And um, I think because um, biblical scholars, systematic theologians, philosophical theologians also have um, an ongoing interest in Christology in its own right, it just it created an opportunity to to speak about a lot of different topics, to try to draw all of it together. And I really enjoyed being able to work through biblical texts, um, mm. historic claims in Christian theology, and some of the philosophical concepts or, or objections from recent philosophical theologians. That's just something that I, I guess I, I tend to gravitate toward technical stuff that also has connections to scripture, that also has connections to the spiritual life. And I thoroughly enjoyed being able to work on this and learned a lot along the way. Yeah. Well, I love it. And I, I, when I first got it and I was thumbing through, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, Tilling and Schleiermacher. I'm like, okay, that's cool. A lot of the classical guys deal with that. But then I saw you reference uh, William Lane Craig and Hasker and it's like, okay, cool. It, when, once, once I see that you're referencing these type of people, you, you, you buy credibility and it's like, okay, I've seen that you you've read this stuff and you're not just like sticking your head in the sand saying history because it's old mm. is good. And so I, I really appreciate the work. And then again, like I said, mm. there's a lot of exegesis. There's a lot of looking up the Greek and the Hebrew. And um, I really appreciate the, uh, the seriousness that you took like to address uh, objections and to bring in um, a, a lot of different sources and to, to not just talk about what Schleiermacher said, but, but going the, the, the broader path of trying to address a, a lot of people. So I, I definitely do commend this book. Um, I've heard from other theologians that, uh, that are my friends on, on Facebook and such that like, this is one of the best ones, one of the best uh, classical uh, pictures of classical theism and, and Christology to come out lately. So like there's been a lot lately. So just wanted to pass that along to you that a lot of people are really appreciating Thank this. You. Even the neoclassical guys are like, this is a serious work mm-hmm. that we can take seriously. So thanks for it, man. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Definitely. Um, all right. So uh, if someone wanted to find some more of your work or even maybe go study with you, um, how can they find you and um, go study with you if they wanted to? Yeah, I've, I've managed to avoid social media, so I don't have any uh, apps smart. such and such or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do get to teach at Phoenix Seminary. Um, thoroughly enjoy being here. I've got systematic theology classes and also get to teach hermeneutics as well. We've got a we've got a strong, strong faculty, like-minded group that are serious intellectually and also about preparing people to serve in the church. Um, I absolutely love it and certainly would welcome people to to consider the seminary. That's awesome. Well, sweet. I'll I'll uh, leave a link to the uh, the seminary there, and then uh, a link to the book where you can grab it. Uh, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism: Biblical Christology in Light of the Doctrine of God. We've only covered just a tiny bit in this uh, podcast episode, so grab the book and dive in. Even if you are a neoclassical guy or some other stripe, uh, it's worth uh, wrestling with and and getting your head around. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.